Hi, Eden. Thanks for welcoming me here. Uh, not here to this planet. I mean, like here, like right here. Uh, I suppose I have my mom and dad to thank for welcoming me to this planet. Wow, tough crowd. Um, yep, I'm going to be talking a little bit about empire, more specifically why Christians have had a little bit of a fetish for it. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the temple, Mark chapter 13, and from Hebrews. But, uh, and yeah, 12 years of ministry, I had like a lot more hair to start. And you can see, I'm like the reverse of those men hair restoration photos before and after. My, my before was like a lot of hair, not a lot, but enough to at least not give me a sunburn. And then, uh, so if you're considering ministry, just take this as a warning. Anyway, not even that, eh? Wow. I thought you teens went for the self-deprecating humor. All right, it'll be all burns from here out on you guys. Just kidding. Before I get into empire, before I get into Christian's temptation about it, I want to talk about Albert Marshall. Albert Marshall grew up hating his parents, hating them. It, was, it, it ruined his life. And uh, it was only after his dad had passed away, Albert sought the truth from his siblings. He approached his brother, who was reluctant to speak about what happened between Albert and his parents. What happened was, Albert, his parents sent Albert away to school. They said, Albert, this is going to be good for you. You need to go off to school. And so Albert did. And the school his parents sent him off to, the boarding school, was absolutely horrible. It was a terrible experience. And, um, and that's because Albert was sent off to go to what at that time was called the Indian Residential School. And at the school he went to in particular was in Shubenaki, Nova Scotia. That school in particular administered beatings for children who were caught acknowledging their sibling in the hallway because there was to be no family ties at that school. They were administered beatings for inadvertently blurting out any word that wasn't in English. Um, so there was a lot of a sense of betrayal and abandon with Albert and his parents, but his siblings <clears throat> retold the story of when Albert actually went away to school. His father spent days sobbing and crying, knowing what he had done to his son, but explaining to his family that he had been threatened by Indian agents that if had he not sent Albert away, they were going to take away all the kids. And so knowing that his parents were coerced into sending him into residential school helped relieve Albert's sense of betrayal. And it sort of explains the story a little bit within that family, but it doesn't explain why <laughs> Albert's parents were being coerced in the first place to send Albert to school. Because there's nothing unusual about Albert's story. There are many stories. Well, there's, sure, there was lots of parents who were willing to send their kids off because they believed it would be a good experience. But there was also a lot of parents who uh, were threatened with imprisonment, threatened with other consequences upon their kids, and so were coerced into sending their kids to residential school. Uh, many escaped to the bush and had to live in the woods as fugitives on the very land they had lived on for generations. Their own homeland having to go live in the forest as fugitives in their own homeland. Now, the reason why I share this story isn't to generate 
pity for the survivors of the residential school system, even though as Canadians we owe them our remorse, we owe them a common pursuit of, just, of a just resolution for that situation. But I share this story because we, as Christians, as you know, are implicated in this story. For as it was going on, the church not only failed to protest what was going on, there were a number of Christians who did protest, but organizationally, churches did not protest. In fact, they volunteered to assist. The Canadian government funded and initiated the residential school system, which, which by the way, this needs to be said many, many times, the residential school system, a big part of that was to dispossess people of their land. That's, that's, that was a big driver of that, among the other things that were going on. But uh, the, government, uh, the Canadian government funded this system, but then, of course, it was churches such as Anglican, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, United, and even Mennonite churches who stepped up and volunteered to carry out this program the Canadian government wanted done. And they did it out of this desire to spread the good news of Jesus to all people. But despite this being a gospel initiative, it was broken from the start as the sense of mission that they were bringing to this initiative was compromised before they even started doing the work, doing what they thought was Christ's work. They had this temptation in their hearts that compromised their mission. And it was not a one-time temptation. We as Christians continue to be implicated in this tragedy because we continue to be inclined toward this temptation that the church had back then. And it's the same temptation that uh, led Christ's church to be this accomplice in this uh, tragedy in Canadian history. So what is this subtle temptation? What do we have it uh, here in North America in our hearts? Well, it's centuries old. And it had, it's had a really strong foothold in the church ever since the time of Constantine. But it predates Constantine. Even before that, Christ warned against it multiple times in his ministry to his disciples. Uh, the text I'm going to focus in on has to do with God saving the world, worship, the role of the temple. Jesus warns against this temptation when his disciples see the temple. They're walking by it, and this is what it reads in Mark chapter 13, uh, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones! What magnificent buildings! The disciple of Jesus is in complete awe. He is, uh, I don't know if you've ever had that moment of uh, when it's just something totally sublime and you're just like, wow! Here the disciple is clearly, in, he's impressed, he's in awe of the splendor and brilliance of the Jerusalem temple. And by all historical accounts, the temple was awe-inspiring. It rivaled the spectacles of Greece and Rome. This is according to their own historians. Tacitus called it a mountain of white marble adorned with gold, a temple of immense wealth. And in the words of one commentator, he said, Herod the builder built it to impress the wealthiest and most powerful rulers of the day in the world, and it succeeded. So it was a very impressive temple. But it's important to note that the disciple was not just admiring any building. He wasn't just passing by a gymnasium. He wasn't just passing by some sort of coliseum. He was passing by Israel's center of worship. Why is this important? Why is temple important in the Old Testament and tabernacle and worship? 
It's because it's, how, it's the central point of how God is saving the world. Right? It's that center of worship. And so this is important that the disciple is in awe about the center of worship. Massive stones, magnificent buildings. It seemed fitting for this disciple that the center of worship for the God of all creation should be so magnificent. Makes sense, right? And in all of this, the unnamed disciple is tempted to believe that God's mission and purposes unfold in a place like this, amid privilege and power. However, Jesus sees it differently. For no sooner had the disciple expressed wonder and amazement at the place of God's dwelling, right? The God of all creation makes sense. This is amazing. No sooner had the... And Jesus is, you know, he's Jesus, so he's not going to be like, well... You're right, this is a wonderful temple and God is worthy to be praised, you know. No, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. He goes right after that that temptation that's stirring in that disciple's heart and he says, oh, do you see all these great buildings? This is how Jesus responds. Mark chapter 13. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. The privilege and power associated with the temple was coming to an end, as was the temple itself. In a matter of days, Jesus would demonstrate that from then on, the place to meet God, the, the, the center of God's saving activity in the world, was not going to be in the temple, this place where you'd expect the work of such a great God to be, the saving work of such a great God, it wouldn't even be within the respectable confines of the city gates. From then on, the center of God's saving activity in the world was going to be outside the gates in the most shameful place possible on a Roman cross. From then on, the sacred place where the Lord of all creation, the awe-inspiring Lord of all creation would meet his people and would meet anyone who would come would be Golgotha. From then on, God's mission and purposes would be seen unfolding in a man, dying on a cross, emptying himself of all privilege and power for the sake of the world, even though he is the Son of God. So understanding that, the pastor of Hebrews helps those first Christians understand this. Right? The, the, the temple, what, what was going on at the time. Well, does this mean everything going on with the temple before Christ was a sham? No, of course not. That was the center of God's saving activity in the world, but it was just a shadow of what was to come. The pastor who wrote the letter to the Hebrews calls this the new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. The temple could only foreshadow the reconciliation between God and humankind, with crude animal sacrifices, but at the cross, Jesus actually achieved that reconciliation once and for all. His self-giving death provided a once-for-all offering for sin. This is the Hebrews terminology, of course. The once-for-all offering for sin, the once-for-all solution for evil in the world. And in doing so, he exposed all other solutions that espouse privilege or power or coercion to be a sham. The cross 
is the ultimate fact check on any attempt to make the world a better place through privilege, through power, through coercion. The cross stands as the ultimate truth. Those other ways are a sham. By accepting this sacrifice for sin, Jesus on the cross, one that turns power and privilege on its head, followers of Jesus are free to worship with consciences cleansed and a body washed with pure water. Again, that's the Hebrews terminology. And it is only in this kind of worship, that the, the kind of worship that graduates from the temple worship to Jesus worship as the temple where we go to find reconciliation with God. It's only in this kind of worship through the blood of Christ that disciples are truly able to participate in God's mission for the world, definitively shaped by the cross of Jesus. I have to say, I wanted to read the Magnificat uh, from Luke's Gospel. Didn't have time, but tis the season. So I want you to read that again as you, uh, it, if, you if your church follows a, a Bible schedule, it'll be this Sunday. But uh, my soul is filled with joy. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That song's awesome. That song is so punk rock about turning power and privilege on its head and the lowly being the ones through whom uh, God brings salvation. Now, what does this mean for us as Christians? I'm, I think I'm going to leave enough time for Alicia to come up and do a Q&A. Is that all right? So for those who are in Christ, this means that we need not primarily concern ourselves. <laughs> I'm not speaking to a, a room full of teenagers, so like I'm expecting tomatoes to be thrown out at this point. But uh, w- what I'm suggesting here from these texts is that what it means for us to follow Christ means that we do not go out into the world as visionaries, world changers, effective key leaders. These are all expressions of power and privilege. If anything, Jesus warned, and this is still part of the Mark 13 text, right? Uh, after talking about the, the prestige of the temple, and he's like, not one of these stones is going to be left on another. Then he says, many will come in my name claiming, I am he. These, what Jesus is talking about are messianic types, people who go out in the world, these visionary leaders who are like, follow me. I have the salvation to what's going wrong in the world. These are people who would come in the name of Jesus but end up pushing their own agenda for the world's salvation, one that has little to do with the cross. And as Christians, this was our departure from the way of Christ. And this is the subtle temptation we have as, well, Western Christians, but ones who have espoused that temptation that's been around strongly since Constantine. When we assumed superiority over the first peoples of this land, as the colonizers assumed superiority over the people who were living here, which was that uh, the, the colonization move was new for Christians. Up to that point, they would go into lands like St. Patrick. Read the story of St. Patrick. That was not a colonization movement. That was an an indigenization movement. Uh, But uh, here, the big mistake was assuming power and privilege. We have the power. We have the privilege. We're going to help you lowly people. And entering a space where you encounter the other person as inferior. God's mission in the world does not depend on visionaries, world changers, or effective key leaders. This is the gospel. God's leader does not depend on you being awesome. God's mission in the world depends on effective 
followers of the great high priest, the one who's done it all, Jesus Christ. So then in the words from Hebrew, well, what are we to do then? In the words from Hebrews, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up on meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. And of course, when Hebrews, when we see that day approaching, we're in the season of Advent, y'all, right? We're, we're anticipating that day approaching as we remember the day that had approached. As we see the day approaching is that day that was achieved in the cross and resurrection, and it's also the day of Christ's return, a day when God is revealed to be the one who sides with the weak and humble, turning expectations of privilege and power upside down. What the, what the writer describes, uh, the, what the writer of the uh, letters to the Hebrews describes as participation to the gospel, if you're not to be out there as visionary key world changers, what are you to do? Participation in the gospel, be near to God, be rooted in hope, be committed to gathering together as Christians and provoking one another onto love and good deeds. And so may God bless our involvement of what he is doing in our world. And by his mercy, may he keep us from the temptation to believe that God's mission is anything less than the self-giving cross of Christ as we are also ourselves broken and poured out for the sake of the world. Amen. You're too kind. That's the first and probably last time I'll ever get applause after a sermon. I have gotten booze before. Boo! Anyway, do you have any questions hearing a sermon like that? Like, I'm sure you do. Where those jokes come from? All up here. <laughs> Amazing how quickly that happens. Um, yeah, like there's just lots to process, I think. Um, just that whole idea, I mean, I feel like all of what we hear from culture and maybe even from churches, like to go and change the world, but I think our understanding, like you, I know, I just think you made a good point in that, like that we're not called to do that through being awesome, um, but through being humble, and that's... So do you, know, um, do you know the Jewish understanding of the 24 hours of a day? No. Does anyone know what the Jewish understanding is of the 24 hours a day? When does the day begin? Sunset. Sunset, that's right. So you know what that does for your understanding of God's work in the world? Your day starts with rest. And the day starts with God saying, just go ahead and sleep for eight hours. I'll get on this. And by the time I've been away at this for a number of hours, you're going to wake up and join me for the tail end of this day. And, and so we're talking about things like agriculture, for instance, where in our modern world, we, especially if you're not involved with agriculture, <laughs> you think it's a matter of like, you know, machinery. I put the seed in, the food comes out. Uh, when you work with agriculture, you have to recognize that there's a lot that's not in your control. And, and a, a farmer can't be a visionary key leader, world changer. A farmer has to be primarily 
a receiver. A farmer has to receive the gift of what's coming up from that soil and tend to it. And the work of a farmer is similar to the work of God's kingdom. It's not control, because it's like, well, what can we do? We won't do anything. God's doing everything. No, it's cultivation. You cultivate the conditions, like a garden bed, of what God is doing in the world. You can't make that plant grow. There's not one bit of your will or energy can make that plant come up from the ground. But you can do all kinds of things in and around that plant to encourage its growth, to create the conditions of growth. And that's the same as your role as Christians, the conditions of kingdom growth. You can cultivate them. Try loving your enemies. See what happens. Amazing things will happen. But that's not you making it happen. That's God's work in the world, and you're just joining in. Sorry. See, at least <laughs> I could go off for like, you got any more questions, Elise? Let's have it. <laughs> Actually, but we have to wrap things up. Yeah. But I think that was great. I think okay. Because I think a lot of times we feel that pressure, right? Like, what does evangelism mean? What does, like, sharing our faith mean? It means, like, changing somebody. And yet, like, that's the Holy Spirit's work. Like, yeah. we, right, like you're saying, we need to cultivate, starting with ourselves, what are our habits? Like, are we even somebody want, someone wants to spend time with? Are we loving each other and being kind? Last comment, because just because you brought up evangelism and we'll round out about the encounter with indigenous peoples. You know you're having the temptation of privilege and power when you encounter someone in the mission of evangelism. They need to hear the good news of Jesus, but if you presume that your encounter with them is the first encounter, that's a mistake. God has already been at work in their lives. And your uh, encounter of evangelism in that person's life and what would have been really beneficial with the First Peoples of Canada is if missionaries came and said, okay, wow, God has been at work with these people for centuries. Let's see where God's been at work in making it a process of discovery. That's the same principle for personal evangelism. How has God been at work in this person's life and tending to that? That's great. Thanks. Um, Thanks, Mike, for coming. And happy Friday, everybody. Have a great weekend.